just for us grace that transforms as well. That, that trains us to renounce ungodliness and to choose upright and godly lives, as Paul says. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to help others uh, grab hold of this grace that is theirs in Christ, Lord God, believing that it is something that he has achieved for them and he alone. And so, Father, uh, give us more wisdom so that we can not hoard it, Lord God, so that we can minister it to others for the glory of your great name. We pray this in Christ alone. Amen. All right. Well, this morning um, we were looking at assurance of salvation. And this is something that if, if you have been listening to Keith last night and then the first uh, weekend we talked about uh, scrupulosity and OCD, religious OCD in particular, um, assurance of salvation is something that is closely linked to a lot of people who struggle in that way. Um, whether or not they are truly saved, for many people who struggle with scrupulosity, is, uh, is something that uh, they obsess over. It's one of, uh, for some people, many obsessions, but maybe that's the primary one for them. And so uh, we're not just going to be talking about scrupulosity and view of assurance of salvation this morning, but I want to let you know that is very much connected. And so a lot of these things, if you're, if maybe you're, uh, you know somebody who struggles with scrupulosity, you can know that this may be one of their obsessions and some of these things may be very helpful for you as you seek to guide them. So let's, let's, let's get a show of hands here this morning. Who knows someone who has struggled deeply with assurance of salvation. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's most of the class. Easily most of the class. This is something that's really common among believers. And um, Christians have been writing about it for, for years. I mean, going back to the Reformers and, and uh, going back to the, the Puritans and, and no doubt before them as well. And so how do we help them is the question. But before we ask the question of how do we help people who struggle with whether or not they are saved, we do need to ask the question, what provokes a person? What provokes a person to struggle with assurance of salvation? And so we're going to ask that question. There, there are many things that do, but, but um, I want to give a, a few things from Scripture that can provoke somebody to, to really um, wrestle with this issue in particular. And so we'll look at... Matthew. Matthew 13 talks about the parable of the sower. But these are scripture references that uh, refer to false converts. This is a reality in the word of God that we see repeatedly. There are, um, there are false converts in scripture. And so knowing that, people who struggle in this way can feel petrified. Uh, they can feel crippled with doubt because they see passages like these. But again, we need to be Bible people who take the whole, the whole word of God and we embrace it, not just the ones that uh, seem to us to be most frightful, right? So let's look at Matthew 13 and we'll uh, look at the parable of the sower. This is something that could lead a brother or sister spiraling downward. Matthew 13, 3 through 8. Jesus says this. And he told them many things in parables, saying, The sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. 
Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then if you jump over to verses 18 through 23, he explains this. Here, then, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown into his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word of God, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word of God and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60 and in another 30. So here we have the parable of the sower and there's only one of the soils that represents the true believer. The very last one that he speaks about in verse 23. So the the three that precede that are those who truly never came to faith. And so you can imagine someone who struggles in this way reading that text and thinking, wow, um, most of the soils are unbelievers. And they can also think about the the broad way that Jesus refers to. That's the narrow way that leads to life. But the broad way that leads to destruction and verses like that. But there's also, if we stay in Matthew, verses like at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 21 through 23, those to whom Jesus says, depart from me. Look with me there. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This text is one, too, that it can be very terrifying. Those who reach the end, I mean, they reach the end. They, they thought they were good. And then Jesus says, depart from me. But, he said, but, but didn't we do all these things in your name? There was a, a deception, right? A self-deception. They thought they were okay. But I was explaining this verse to my kids the other day. And um, I said, notice how when they spoke to the Lord, it was all about what they did. Didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? Didn't we do this in your name? It was all about what they had done. There, there's nothing about, well, 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 you're the one who's our only hope. You're the one that we need. You're the one who is our righteousness. There, there's nothing like that. Isn't it interesting? It's about what they have done. There's, there's a focus on themselves, it seems, there. It's an important point. But then there's also text that may provoke question and doubt, like John 2, 23 through 25, those with counterfeit faith. 
it's, it's interesting what Jesus says about these people here, or what John writing in this text says about these people with faith, he says. John 2, 23 through 25, this is what we read. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now, isn't it interesting? It says here in verse 23, many believed. It says they believed. But then we read in verse 24, Jesus did not impart himself or entrust himself to them. So we have to conclude this is a false faith. This is a counterfeit faith. It's not a genuine saving faith. And then there's also, if we stay in John, Judas, right? Look with me at chapter 13, 21 through 25. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that, so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? What we are going to do, do quickly. Now, the other disciples didn't know it was him. You ever think about that? They are looking around at each other, uncertain of whom he is speaking. And John has to lean back and says, who, Lord, who is it? It wasn't like they said, oh, I have no, I have no doubt. It's, it's the one with the money bag. The one with, back there, it's always, his eyes are always shifting around. You know, it's that guy. It, no, no one knows it's Judas. Yet he is the one without true faith. He is the one that doesn't have a heart of love for the Savior. I, I want to recommend, um, by the way, a, a sermon to you. You can go look it up. It's uh, by John MacArthur. It's called, uh, I believe, A Tale of Two Preachers. Tale of Two Preachers. And it's um, a sermon where he, basically, he, he does, the whole sermon is uh, walking through the different texts that talk about Peter and Judas and walking toward the cross and walking toward uh, the atonement, uh, the things that Peter does and the things that Judas does. And, and he shows how there's so much that's exactly the same. One betrays Jesus Christ, but then you have Peter who denies him three times. And, and he ends up at the very end, he's, he's building this up. He goes, look, at all this is the same. You know, they're walking with Jesus. And no one knows it's, it's Judas who's the, the son of destruction here in John chapter 13. And, and you've got um, Peter. He, Peter has remorse. He walks away after Christ looks at him, you know, after the rooster crows the third time. And, and Christ looks at him, it says in the text, and he, he runs away weeping. So he's got remorse. Does Judas have remorse? Of course he does. He's got remorse. He cast the silver back at the, at the, the feet of the chief priests. There's, both of them have remorse. But he ends up saying, okay, so what's the difference? 
And he turns to John 21, the restoration passage of Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, yes, yes. Three times he denied Christ. Three times Jesus gives him the opportunity to confess that he loves him, right? And so he ends up saying, what's the difference between the two? Peter loved Jesus. And Judas, his sorrow was not a sorrow that leads to repentance, but a sorrow that leads to death, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7. So you see, there's answers for these different objections and things that provoke people to struggle with assurance of salvation. What else can provoke a person toward this struggle? Believers are commanded to spiritually examine themselves. That's exactly what 2 Corinthians 13.5 says. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith, Paul says. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And so, wow, that, that is something that someone who doubts their salvation does all the time. I believe it was a, a John Piper Ask Pastor John podcast where he talked about that verse in particular and came to the conclusion, this is, this is a, a verse that's not meant to be something you engage in like every single day obsessively. Yeah, we all have to do it, but that's, it's not to have that kind of frequency associated with it. Because that's, that's often a fear and not faith, right? So you can imagine they're already doing this. And so you say, yeah, if you th- you know, they, they seem like they have a precedent, right? I've got something in Scripture that I know I should be doing. You're telling me that I, I don't need to obsess over this, but the Scriptures say that I ought to be examining myself to see I'm in the, if I'm in the faith. So they, they point to that Scripture and say, well, I, apparently everyone needs to be doing this. So that can be a struggle. There's also the fact that the presence of sin remains in us, right? When we're saved, we don't become perfect. No one does. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. There's a war within and the person who struggles sees that war. They see their sin. They, they're, not, they're not blind to it. There's some sins they're blind to, and we can talk about that later. But uh, they are zeroed in on their sin, and that causes them to, to grieve and to wonder if they know the Lord. And there's also the fear of having committed the unpardonable sin. And we'll look at that um, later in more detail. That comes from Matthew 12, 31 and 32. Jesus speaks of that. And so, man, that, that, listen, that is big for a lot of people who struggle obsessively with this. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? We'll answer that in uh, just a few moments. And then there's also this. There's a tendency toward comparison for all, all of us. You can always find somebody who's more mature than you. You can always find somebody who knows the Lord better than you who knows the scriptures better, who is, who is holier than you. And so you look around and, and that can feel like, okay, if I'm not like that person, am I really saved at all? But we can't... It was uh, Thomas Brooks. He's got this, um, this book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And in it, he talks about how we can't measure faith by the highest degree whenever we're talking about it. Like, that, that, of course, then everybody would struggle with doubting their salvation if, if faith is, is always like uh, at the apex of what we imagine it could possibly be. No, 
we're growing. We're all of us growing. We're all in process. And different people are at different stages of spiritual growth, are they not? We have to remember this. Okay. So how can we help those who find it hard to believe they are saved? Well, first of all, this, this is an opportunity. We need to establish whether or not they believe the gospel is revealed in Scripture. Maybe they don't know the gospel. I think a lot of times in, in Christian circles, and someone struggles in this way, and I think we're too quick to run past this point. I think, oh, listen, do, don't worry about that. You, yes, of course you know Jesus. Of course you're saved. I remember you. I remember you walked the aisle. I remember you prayed that prayer. Of course you're saved. And we jump past this. This might be a wonderful opportunity to go back through the gospel with this person to see if they truly understand the gospel in the first place. And so uh, I'll give you just a, a, a quick, you know, four points you can walk through with them. Okay, this, this comes from a little book. You've probably seen it. Uh, what is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert? Wonderful little book that we hand out at our church. Just, uh, it's only like 110 pages long. But very good and just a, a, an easy to remember breakdown. Four points of what the Gospel is. And you start out with God the righteous creator. God the righteous creator. You start there because if you just start with sin, what's the problem? Do you even know? What's the problem if you just start with sin without God first? Yes, God establishes the standard, first of all. And sin is against who, primarily? Against God. And so sin doesn't seem that bad if it's not against a holy God, right? And then the the just punishment of sin doesn't really make sense if it's not against a holy God, right? If, If the sin itself is not against a holy God. So you have to establish God first. He is the one who made us. He is the one who has established the standard. He is the one who made us for his own glory. And so any departure from um, seeking to glorify him, yeah, is, is really wicked. It's, I mean, that's the way we describe it. It's evil because he made us to glorify him. And we've gone astray to our own way, Isaiah 53 says. We've gone astray to our own way. And so you can understand better that sin, yes, is awful because it's against the perfect holy God who made us. And the purpose that he made us for was so that we would magnify him. And we're not doing that. We're saying me, not you. My way, not yours. So you have to establish that first. And in a a good text to do that with is Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 1. Really, verses 1 and 2 would be good ones to use. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So everything on earth belongs to God. He's the one who's made us. Therefore, he gets to tell us how to live, what we exist for. He gets to do that. And we have to establish that or else sin doesn't make sense because sin is against the righteous creator. Man, the sinner. You know many of these verses, Romans 3.23, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. Fallen short of his glory. And then if we're, we're staying in Romans, it says that in chapter 1, verse 18 
says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We deserve his wrath. His wrath is revealed against us for our sin. Romans 6.23, right? For the wages of sin is death, we're told. Our righteous creator must punish unrighteousness because it is an offense to his person, offense to his character, and the very reason he created us. And so his punishment is just and good and right. So you establish man the sinner, and in that you establish the penalty for sin that is just, but then you move into Jesus Christ the Savior. Let me show you my, this is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, and I'll, sh- I'll explain why here in a moment, but look at me at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's him, for the unrighteous, that's us, the great exchange, right? That, he's about to give us the reason, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That shows us that the ultimate treasure of the gospel is God himself. Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Reconciliation with God. So much, um, so often we talk about um, forgiveness and we talk about eternal life and we talk about redemption. And all of those things are wonderful facets of the gospel diamond that we need to explore with our counselees. But at the same time, we need to say, but you know what? What's eternal life without God? What's eternal life? What's forgiveness of sins? Forgiveness of sins means that we can enjoy God forever because sin's taken out of the equation, right? Redemption means that we can enjoy Him and live with Him and there's, there's no hindrance between Him and our enjoyment of His glory and of His person. So we need to establish that. We're separated from God because of our sin, right? But... How do we get to God? It's only through Jesus Christ, the Savior. He brings us to God. And then Romans 5, 8, right? God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then the right response. Repentance and faith, right? Repentance... If, if repentance is this wall over here, or, or I'm sorry, if, if my sin is represented by that wall over there, then if I'm going to turn to Jesus Christ over here, that's what that wall represents, then I must turn away from sin and turn to Jesus Christ, right? The turning away from sin is the repentance. The turning this way to Jesus Christ is faith. It's just one motion, isn't it? Just It's just two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith. I've got to turn from sin to turn to Jesus in faith. And so it's that that's how we get to Jesus, Two sides of one coin, repentance and faith. Acts 3.19 talks about, um, and Peter's there is calling for repentance so that our sins will be blotted out. But he doesn't mention faith there. And then in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, it's the Philippian jailer, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And so, But just because in that sentence in Acts 3.19, he doesn't say 
faith. He doesn't talk about belief in that exact sentence. And in Acts 16.31, he doesn't mention repentance. doesn't mean they're not implied, okay? And so um, we see in other texts like Mark 1.15, Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Both those things are mentioned in one text. And so um, that's the right response. You can preach the gospel to somebody, but then not tell them how they receive the benefits of Jesus Christ, right? Steve Lawson in in seminary, he would tell us, um, the gospel is the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the terms of Christ. Uh, The person and the work, we know that. But the terms of Christ are, uh, how do you receive the benefits of his person and work? Repentance of faith. That's the terms of the gospel, right? The terms of Christ. Okay. So that just this may be a, a perfect opportunity if someone's struggling to walk through the gospel with them. Again, maybe they don't understand it. Maybe they don't know it. Maybe there's a part of this that's been left out for them in their thinking. How do we help them? We need to point them to the root and fruit of salvation. This is just an illustration that I'm, I'm working with here. So... There's the, the root and the fruit. Okay, I want to explain first. Here's what the root is. This is what I'm referring to when I say root. The root of salvation is Christ. Okay? Jesus Christ. The heart of faith must be directed only to him. He is the Christian's one hope. Okay? Let's establish that first. Okay, he's, he's the root of our salvation. We look to him alone as our Savior. Now, let's kind of unpack that a little bit and reinforce it a bit more. Look with me at Luke 17. Luke 17, 5 and 6. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said... If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted, planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Why does Jesus say that? Well, he, they say increase our faith. But he says, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, the point he's making is, is it's not the strength of faith you need to be concerned with. They want their faith to increase. He's... he's He's trying to turn them away from that idea of increasing their faith. He said, that's not really the main point. And I think that's instructive for us because our focus should not be the strength of our faith, but who our faith is in. So often when people struggle with doubting their salvation, they're looking at themselves. And they're thinking, well, but, but my, my faith is not strong, it's weak. I, and so they're, they're trying to evaluate and assess and measure their own faith. And Jesus turns the disciples away from thinking that way. It's who your faith is in that matters. Is it in Jesus? Is he your only hope? Is he your salvation? Christ is central. He's the one we look to by faith. Now, look with, with me in another text. I, wanna, I really just want to promote Christ as the one that our primary attention must be directed to so that we don't struggle with doubting salvation. Look at me, Hebrews chapter 10. Starting in verse 19, we'll go through verse 23. 
<clears throat> Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Okay, now, we see this text and we ask the question, why is it that we can have full assurance? And I think we see from the text why. Verse 19, you see that? By the blood of Jesus, right? Confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, okay? And by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, right? Verse 21, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Who's that? Jesus. And by the way, and I just saw, was reminded of this in verse 23. I just saw this. Look, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promises faithful. Not because we're faithful, but because he's faithful. Right? The one who promised us is faithful. So the, we have to direct our focus where it needs to be residing, which is on Christ. Now we're not going to we're not going to work through all these, but think about the I am statements of Jesus and how those point us to him as the one that our faith must be in, right? He says I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I mean, and then he says also I am the true vine. John 15 He's the one that we ought to be helping people to look to. So, so often, when you've got somebody who's doubting their salvation, they're spending much like, I'm sure, that uh, last night Keith talked to you about, you have people looking within. They're morbidly introspective, thinking about themselves, how they measure up. And they're lost in the darkness of... Um, trying to navigate their own hearts and not thinking about Jesus Christ. They're going down there not thinking about the gospel. We need, like, uh, I'm not sure if Keith mentioned this to you, that, that uh, famous quote by Robert Murray McShane. He says, for every one look to Christ, or sorry, one look to self, take ten looks to Christ, right? The person who struggles with assurance of salvation needs to hear that. Ten looks to Christ for every one look to self. You could help them by pointing them to the I am statements of Jesus and explaining those and having them research those. Now, the fruit of salvation are those attitudes and actions that give evidence that a believer's faith is solely in Jesus for redemption. The fruit is important, but only exists because of the root. This is important. Okay, so we have to establish a priority here. Because what a person struggling in this way will do is look at their fruit, look at their maturity, look at their faith. And that's what they want to look to in order to establish their, establish their salvation, so to speak, establish their, their certainty that they are saved. 
But the fruit that they have in their lives should only be a sign pointing them to the root, right? Because you don't have the fruit without the root. And so when you see something that is a good work, a, a fruit of the Spirit, that you can say, I'm, I'm reading Galatians chapter 5 here, and I see here that, uh, yeah, there's objectively some love in my life in this way. Well, you don't stay there. That reality in your life should lead you to the root of salvation, Christ, and you should give praise to him. And that should reinforce your faith in him, right? While both the root and the fruit help the struggling believer with assurance, it is imperative for us to prioritize a focus on the root over the fruit. If the root is the, I'm sorry, if the fruit is the main focus, the believer can easily turn to a functional self-confidence that will result in moving him or her further away from assurance. Now, here's what I mean by that. So if the, the person, the struggling Christian, is looking at her fruit, well, when she sees it, she's going to feel great, right? She's, she's going to be confident and happy. Uh, there's reason to believe I'm saved because I see this fruit. But if she doesn't follow the fruit to the root and have her faith in Christ reinforced, then whenever she doesn't see the fruit, maybe she's blind to it, maybe she's struggling, she's, she's in, a, in a slump, spiritually speaking, then she's going to tank hard. So, the one who must have our gaze is Jesus. His sacrifice is always sufficient. His righteousness never diminishes. It's never lacking, right? He is completely adequate for our hope in every way. We aren't, though. We aren't. John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. <laughs> because because it, it would be about us, Right? We would definitely lose it because you know, because we're imperfect, we're, we're sinful, we're, we're wicked. So yeah, we'd lose it if, if we could, but we can't because it's not up to us. We're preserved and we'll talk more about that later. Okay, so let's talk about how the root, Jesus, assures us. The preservation of the saints. Now, Perhaps you're thinking, well, no, 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 it's perseverance to the saints, Brent. It's perseverance. Like the way R.C. Sproul talks about this in his book, Chosen by God. He uh, believes it's better to refer to preservation in the TULIP acronym, right? Rather than perseverance, because preservation highlights God's work and perseverance highlights our work. We don't reinforce our faith in God again, don't we? So we talk about preservation, the only reason we persevere is because God is preserving us. All right? So we concentrate on His grace, His preserving grace. And that's the only way that we can actually persevere. You don't want the struggler thinking about himself primarily. Again, you want his faith to be in the Lord. Okay, so let's look at these different texts. Look through these and 
And many of them you'll be familiar with, but we're going to look through them again just because you've got to put these texts right before their eyes. You know, they're, they're, they may be thinking primarily about the parable of the sower, thinking about the unpardonable sin and looking at those texts. They need to remember these texts. So look at me at John chapter 5. John 5, starting verse 37. <clears throat> and the Father who sent me, Jesus says, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who has sent, whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in him... I'm sorry, this is the wrong text. Look at, let's, I think it is chapter 6, guys. I'm sorry about that. Change that for me in your notes. This is John 6, 37. There we go. This is the one I'm looking for. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Oh, that's so encouraging. For I have come down, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I will never cast out. I will lose nothing of what he has given me. Not one of the chosen will be lost. Praise the Lord for that. That's a promise. Now, look with me uh, over a few verses, I'm sorry, a few chapters in John chapter 10. Starting in verse 28. John 10, 28 and 29. The Good Shepherd passage, Jesus says, speaking of his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. It's like Jesus can't snatch them out of Jesus' hand, he can't snatch them out of God's hand, right? It's like the way he talks about it, it seems like it's like the double coverage almost, right? No one can be snatched out of Jesus' hand or the Father's hand. Now, let me uh, give you an example of how someone who did not believe in the preservation of the saints um, spoke against that text. I met um, a lady and her daughter. I was sharing the gospel in, with uh, our church in Fort Worth. And um, this woman did not believe. She, she claimed to believe in the gospel and seemed to know the gospel fairly well, but she didn't believe in the preservation of the saints. And so um, she said of this verse, when I brought it up, yes, you're right. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand or Jesus Christ's hand. But you can snatch yourself out. Like you can remove yourself. So no one can, but you can remove yourself out of his hand. Right? That, that was her, the way she, she spoke against this text. Yeah, no, no one else can snatch you out, but you can remove yourself. Now, how do you combat that? Look with me at Romans 8. That's not, but by the way, that's not what Jesus is intending in that text, okay? He doesn't mean that. But what's another text you could use to uh, speak to that issue? Romans 8. Let's look at 38 and 39 primarily. We'll backtrack in a minute to go to the other ones. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure, sure, that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Anything else in all of creation, including me, right? Including me. Paul is being exhaustive here. He's being emphatic here. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, including me. If I'm saved, I'm always saved. Look with me back at Romans 8, 29 and 30. The chain of salvation, as it's called. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified so it's a kind of a chain he keeps going he kind of goes back and then he goes forward goes back and then goes forward it's this chain that he's establishing and notice this the word glorified It's past tense, isn't it? Why, why, why did the English translators put glorified? Why, why, why not say he will glorify? That no, means your good is glorified. You're, you're predestined? In God's mind, he, he's not bound by time, is he? No, he stands above time. And you're as good as glorified if you're predestined. If you're justified, you're as good as glorified. Because God doesn't fail. What an assuring text. Look with me at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, from the dead. We, uh, are, we named our church Living Hope Bible Church because of this text. And so notice how it ties living hope to the resurrection of Christ there in verse 3. So we say hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Right? That's true for every believer. So he has made us to be born again to a living hope. But also verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so what verse 4 tells us is we've got this inheritance, this inheritance of eternal life that um, is kept in heaven for us. So the inheritance of eternal life is being guarded for us. Right? And how do we know we're going to get to what's being guarded for us? Because he says, you are being guarded. Right? God's guarding you, and he's doing so through faith for salvation that's going to be revealed. So, again, where is the weight of our faith to be placed? On God, on Jesus. I like what Sproul says here. We believe that true Christians can fall seriously, and radically, we do not believe that they can fall totally and finally. 
Salvation is of God from first to last. It's been said. From predestined to glorification, salvation is of God. Not of us. Faith should never be in ourselves. Let's go on. Let's answer this question. How can we be sure he will preserve us? If he says he's going to, how can we be sure he will? Look at me at Isaiah 46. Nine through eleven. I love this text. <clears throat> Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all. My purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. There's a lot of certainty in those verses. So, God doesn't fail. He does not fail. That's why we can believe that He will preserve us. There's also this this, uh, little passing comment in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it's important for us, establishing why we can believe that God will preserve us. Hebrews six eighteen, He says, and it's kind of in the middle of a sentence, but he says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, just a little passing comment, but it tells us it's impossible. God can't lie. He doesn't lie. There's no possibility that he's going to lie. He's told us in the word of God that these things are going to be true and he's going to preserve us. We can believe him. Now, there's something else I want to establish in terms of why we can believe that God will preserve us. Look with me at Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 Look with me, I'm going to look at three verses here in this, this very, I mean, so, so dense in terms of the glory of the gospel here and what God has done for us in Christ. But look with me at verse 6, speaking of how he predestined us for adoption. In verse 6, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, what about verse 12? Down here, talking to... About, and again, this is all connected to us being in Him, that's in Christ. Why does He do this? So that, verse 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Now look at verse 14. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, He is a guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The praise of His glory. The praise of His glory. The praise of His glorious grace. God's ultimate goal in our salvation is His glory. Now why does that help us to believe that He will preserve us? Think of it this way. Someone who struggles with doubting His salvation, 
may come to this conclusion. The gospel just doesn't make sense. I mean, I look at my heart and I I see all of the wickedness. I see all of the sin, the selfishness and the pride. And it's in there. And I've I've seen it with glaring clarity. It doesn't make sense. Why would God save me? So unworthy. Why, why, why in the world would God uh, w- want to send his son to die for me? I'm so I'm evil, they would say. Well, if you're just looking at yourself, maybe it doesn't make sense. Probably doesn't. You know, if you're just looking at yourself, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. But if you're thinking about God glorifying himself in the gospel, then what makes more sense for him to highlight his gracious character his power, his mercy and love, than by saving his enemies, wretches, wicked, evil people, so that he could then redeem them, bring them into his family, and love them for eternity as he's transforming them into the image of his son increasingly. That, that, then the gospel makes perfect sense. If he's doing it for his glory, what, there's nothing that makes more sense than he would save us change us and spend eternity loving us that highlights his character so beautifully and so meditating on the fact that the ultimate purpose for the gospel is his glory helps a believer who's struggling to be ensured that god will preserve him okay, man we're man sorry this is so much fun Okay, but I've sinned so much, someone might say. I've sinned so much. Jesus died to save the ungodly. He died to save the ungodly. If you go look through that Romans 5 passage, 6 through 10, the way that we're described there, ungodly, weak, enemies of God. Those three designations. Ungodly, weak, enemies of God. But he demonstrates his own love. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you say, I've sinned so much. That's, that's what he came to do, is to rescue those who are ungodly. Okay, what else? You say, I've sinned so much. Think of this. This is, this is Greg Gilbert. By the way, uh, if I could recommend one book that you could use with the Council Lee on this, I would recommend the book by Greg Gilbert called Assured. That's the title. Assured. It is so practical and Christ-centered. I would highly recommend that book for you if you were working through this issue with somebody. Okay, Assured by Greg Gilbert. Okay, this is what he says in that book. He says, he says this truth that Christ died not for the, God, for the godly or the acceptable or even the barely tolerable, but he died for the ungodly, it assaults our innate desire to leap towards self-assurance. That's good. Because the bent of our prideful hearts is always to try to make ourselves worthy of what Christ has done for us. To show him that he made a good choice in acting to save us. And that his return on investment will be spectacular. Or at least not embarrassing. See what he's saying? So we're we're always trying to look to ourselves to be assured. Looking at me so that I can feel assured about my salvation. And so we need to remind ourselves, no, 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 no. Jesus came to, to save the ungodly, not the acceptable, not the barely tolerable, not the godly, but the ungodly. Right? 
So we need to cut out any hope of finding uh, assurance in ourselves so that we will look to Christ to find that assurance. That's what he means. You say, I've sinned so much. Well, your salvation is not at all based on the merit of your works. You only have demerit, by the way. But it's completely on Jesus' atoning work for you, right? God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him, we would be made the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It's in his merit, his work. You say, I've sinned so much. Well, for Christians, a test of genuine faith is whether life is characterized by persistent sin, by the way, okay? Persistent sin. Now, that's what 1 John 3.6 says, okay? 1 John 3.6. I'm moving a little more quickly here, I apologize, but um, it says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So it's, but it's persistent sin. So what do we do with that? Someone says, um, they look at um, 1 John and maybe they're concerned. Well, this does not refer to one particular sin in a person's life that he is fighting against. That's not what we're referring to here. And by the way, if we're looking at 1 John, this is what verse 8 says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, Anyone who claims to be sinless is a liar. But for the person who knows he's a sinner, there's forgiveness in Christ. So John expects that we're going to sin. You say you have no sin, you're, you're a liar. But 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the... Uh, the confession in 1 John 1, 9 is meant to be ongoing, which means John fully expects the Christians to continue to sin so that they continue to need God's fatherly forgiveness in their lives. Dan Kirk says it like this. It's not about perfection, it's about direction. Where's your life directed? Not going to be perfect. Now, obviously, John doesn't expect that. So you say, I've sinned so much. The normal Christian experience is a war between the flesh and the spirit. We already looked at Galatians 5.17. That's the normal Christian experience. We, we, we don't rise above that in this life. And by the way, I, this, is, this is something I was con, uh, contemplating reading through a Jerry Bridges book called The Transforming Power of the Gospel. If you see more sin in your life as you go throughout you know, a day-to-day experience and, and, you're, and you're becoming more like Christ and you're becoming holy, you may see more sin in your life. But seeing more sin may be an indication that the Spirit is working in you. Why? To reveal new pockets of sin for you to turn from so that you can transform from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ. Okay, so I see more sin in my life. I mean, sometimes we feel that way, right? Uh, we've been Maybe you've been a Christian for 20 years, and you're like, I didn't even see that in my heart before. Well, you, as you get closer to the light, you see more of the dirt, right? I remember my um, college pastor talking about his little boy. Um, whenever we were in college, he was talking about his little boy, like four or five years old, and he'd kind of look and say, hey, you got something, you got something on your face. He said, come here, boy. 
And he'd call his, his, his son to him. And he, as he got closer to his son, he saw that it was more than just a little spot on his face. He had mud all over his face because he'd been playing outside, you know. As he got closer, he could see. As we, and there's a sense in which that's true of us too, we, we get closer to God and he reveals more and more of the dirt, more and more of the sin. But that just means we've got more to turn from, more to trust God for, more to grow out of. It becomes for us a for new focus for us to, to be sanctified in. How does the fruit, the attitudes and the actions assure us? Well, in bearing fruit, we prove to be Christ's disciples. That's what John 15, 8 says. Bear fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So yes, the fruit does point to discipleship in Christ, that we belong to him. But it draws our attention back to him. It won't stay there and thinking about the fruit ourselves and have assurance in our fruit and in what we've done, but in what Christ has done in us. And it reinforces our faith in him, right? The Spirit produces the fruit. So again, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not just the fruit. That's not what Paul calls it. Like, here's the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience. No, he says it's the fruit of the Spirit. So that should lead us to say, oh, wow, the fruit's in my life. Who's producing it? The Spirit. Why is the Spirit there? Because of Christ. And the Spirit's activity in our lives points us back to our hope in Christ, who is the root. Now, um, wow. I want you to, uh, when you get some time, go look at Romans 8, 13, and 14. Okay? And, and also verses 15 and 16. And then you'll see this footnote. Do you have that footnote at the bottom? Um, Jason Cruz's blog post, do you have that at the bottom? Go read that post, because that's going to explain here what I'm talking about. Uh, Jason had a great post showing how, um, you know, in Romans 8, whenever it talks about the Spirit in us crying, Abba, Father, it's connected to us putting sin to death. And so the we see that we are led by the Spirit and therefore belong to God as sons and daughters whenever we're putting sin to death. So if you're putting sin to death, that assures you that the Spirit is leading you, okay? And that can uh, testify that you are a child of God. And so um, take a look at that. That will really help you see the importance of fighting sin and that leading you back to your assurance being in Christ and not yourself. In gaining assurance, the struggler must follow the root to the, the fruit to the root so that hope in Christ is again reinforced. Now, in gaining assurance, there is a striving. There is striving that must be done. And so here's what we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. So he's calling on diligent effort 
in doing what? In adding these things to your faith, right? To uh, putting on self-control and steadfastness and godliness. In, in doing that, you're, you are making your, or you're confirming your calling and election by striving after those qualities in your life. Objections. What about those texts that seem like salvation is conditioned upon perseverance? Okay, here's a couple of examples for you. You can write down. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 14 says this, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. What do we do with a text like that? We've come to share in Christ if you persevere. How do you interpret that when it comes to assurance of salvation? Here's what I'd say. We must see these as warnings that God uses as one of the means to preserve his elect as he stirs them up toward active faith. You read texts like that and you're like, okay, then that means I need, to, I need to keep pursuing him, right? Keep standing on the gospel and not departing from it. And so that's just one of the ways in which he does goad us and, and push us forward in his preservation of us. That's one of his preserving means. What about the unpardonable sin? Look with me at Matthew 12. Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32. says, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So what do we do with this? The context tells us what this sin is. Okay? If we were to look at the context in verses 23 through 24 we would find out that in hardened unbelief, the Pharisees have attributed Christ's power in casting out demons to the agency of Satan. You cast out demons by Beelzebul. They're so hardened. They're so anti-Jesus. They've, they've seen his miracles. They've heard his teaching. This is a resolved denial and rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' clear demonstration of his Messiahship by the ministry of the Spirit, okay, that's the Spirit comes into play, has been met with such obstinate rejection by the Pharisees that they sink to the level of claiming that his miraculous work is of the devil. This is the unpardonable sin. Notice these words, obstinate rejection, right? And so I'll say this, I'll close with this, this quote from Andy Nacelli. It's long, here's some blanks for you, but I think his, his uh, conclusion here about the unpardonable sin is spot on. Listen, the unpardonable sin is not an accidental, impulsive, or unguarded slip of the tongue. It is desperately, I'm sorry, is it, it is deliberately repudiating the truth about Jesus. That's important. It is deliberately repudiating the truth about Jesus. Those who have committed the unpardonable sin are not worried about it. 
They are hardened in their unbelief. So if you're worried that you've committed the unpardonable sin, that is a reliable sign that you have not committed it. If you are ashamed of your sin against God, then you have not committed the unpardonable sin. So instead of feeling hopelessly condemned, keep turning from your sins and keep trusting Jesus. If you are in Jesus, the Messiah, then there is no condemnation for you. Romans 8.1. I think he's spot on. Because so many people are thinking about this. They're worried about it. And it's not something they did on accident. You'll find that to be true with somebody who is struggling with this in particular. Like, what if I committed the unpardonable sin? What if? Listen, this is obstinate rejection. This is deliberate repudiation of Jesus Christ and his ministry empowered by the Spirit. So I think that can be a, a huge help to people who might be struggling this in particular. because there, And there's been a lot of debate about what the unpardonable sin is, but I think contextually, if you look at verses 22 through 24, you'll see what it is. It's not, um, it's not outside of the context in which it is spoken. Okay, I've held you guys way too long. I'm sorry, Keith was giving me the hairy eyeball over there. So let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us and giving us these promises of assurance. Thank you that you are the one who preserves us. Therefore, we will persevere. I pray, Lord God, our hope would be in Jesus the root, that knowing that our fruit comes only because of Jesus Christ, who is our only hope. We pray this in his name. Amen.